For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 13-21 For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new new creation, a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. And, and uh, so that's, that's all about exchanges. Now, Larry has already read some of the best scriptures about exchanges. I want you to kind of understand, uh, in my view, uh, when Peter, uh, there's some other verses we could have brought out in Peter, uh, but when he quotes uh, Isaiah 53 and when Paul quotes Isaiah 53, one of the things hopefully we're starting to understand as a church more and more through both John's and my teachings is that, uh, you know, Paul talks about in Galatians how he went away for 14 years because from the time uh, he encountered Jesus, and Jesus knocked him off his donkey onto his face, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, thou art persecuting. I'm going to show you what you must suffer for my name's sake. He had to, as a, as a thorough scholar of the entire Old Testament, having studied under Gamaliel, the leading scribe of, the, of that time period, and having been his disciple, he had to rethink everything in the Scriptures in light of Christ. And to see what had always been there, and he had been blind to. And that's the whole reason Christ made him blind for three days, when in fact was the first time he actually could see. And then, of course, uh, Jesus tells the Pharisees after he heals the blind man, because you think you can see, therefore you're still blind. Your sins remain. So if uh, one of the, that, that is kind of the wrestling match we all go through as Christians, beginning with our Christian life, when we are, when we are on the throne, when we are in the control, when we do our own thing, when we have our plan for the man or you know, for the ladies or, you know, men have their plan to, to, to do something about the opposite. When you're operating on your plan about vocation, what doesn't matter what it is. When you, are, when you are Lord of your life and you're not trading your life for his, death reigns in you and sin reigns in you and everything becomes destroyed. And you can never alter that. When you go after what you want instead of what God wants, you, it will be poison. It will taste sweet in your mouth 
and become bitterness in your bowels. And uh, such is the nature of sin. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about eight things that Christ traded for uh, on the cross, what he did for us. He exchanged his life for our life. The just died for the unjust. Now, I underlined a couple parts of 2 Corinthians 5 there so we could understand this here. In other words, we were the unjust. Of all people, we didn't deserve someone to sacrifice their life for our life. One of the reasons countries celebrate things like Memorial Days and Veterans Day and so forth is hopefully you're painfully aware that you didn't deserve anybody to sacrifice their life for your life. Yet you, but yet it's a fact of history, and they did for you. Um, so, um, if if we have gone beyond this shallow sinner's prayer thing, and we've really become a follower of Christ, then this statement should be true of you: for the love of Christ controls us. You know, one of the things I've most noticed about seeing people come to Christ is everyone is a control freak. And everyone finds ways to cope with life and they, so that they can seemingly convince themselves that I'm not that messed up and I have it together and I'm, it's not a tra- my life's not a tragedy and so forth. When, it's that, when you're wrong, your life's a tragedy when you ha- are in control of it because you weren't created for that purpose. So where we want to be, where we want to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court and ask God's help is, uh, and we're going to talk about this at the end, how to kind of implement some of what, at the end, I'm going to conclude the message with talking about how to implement some of these eight things we're going to talk about. But what we want to do is say, God, take me to the place where the love of Christ controls me. Where when someone says, oh, what are you doing? Or, Why did you do that? You can just say, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? <laughs> I mean, r- really? I mean, didn't you know that I did this because I love Christ? That's what I get. That's why I get up when I get up. That's why I do what I do. And I do it because I love Christ. Anything less is not what he died to give you. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. I have those uh, listed there on, as 1 Corinthians 6.20, as what I just quoted. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says, you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. One of the reasons, whenever it's in my power as a pastor to influence people about their vocational calling and so forth, I will always try to counsel you one more direction, that other people don't have control of what you're doing or going other than Christ. No long-term contracts. <laughs> you know, if um, now there are biblical exchanges. If you're married, you're laying down your life for another's life in a in the in a very biblical way. You're entering, but you're entering a covenant that's three-way with God when you do that. I, you know, the reason I even quit the job I had and started my own financing company was God was speaking to me out of 1 Corinthians 7:23. 
you know, I kept saying to the people I work for, I can't drive to keep driving to Cincinnati forever. I won't ever be able to do the ministry. If you'll let me work out of Dayton, I'll stay working for you if you won't. And they basically said, well, you train all the new people. We'd like you to keep coming. And I said, well, you know, I've kept saying this to you for a couple of years now. So that's all the further I can go. I've got to go do what God wants me to do. And you gotta you gotta pursue the freedom where the spirit of the Lord is. There's liberty. I'm all for covenants and so forth, but are your covenants that which directs you more towards the lordship of Christ or less? Now, here's how you define if the love of Christ controls you, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. You know, you really ask God to search me, the psalmist, Psalm 139, search me and know my thoughts, know my anxious thoughts. Worry is actually one of God's ways of helping you know that that Jesus is the Lord. The word to be anxious means to be divided between two lords. When when you tend to worry about things, God is trying to call you to a deeper love for him. It's actually his gift to say you haven't really given him your full heart yet. Because for those who are sitting at Christ's feet, like Mary did, there's nothing to worry about. He made him who knew no sin, that is, he never experienced sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All, this whole passage is just Paul's rethink of what Larry read us in Isaiah 53 uh, today. So, before we talk, I want to talk, make one more point before we talk about the eight things, and hopefully I'll be able to go through them pretty quickly. But I want to talk about the double irony of the exchange. Okay. The double irony is this. When it, and you look, at, you look at God slaying the animals and passing through them with Abraham, you look at every covenant of the Bible, it simply gets down to this. We did not deserve God to enter into covenant with us And because he knew we could never keep the covenant, he fulfilled it with his death. There's no no life, there's no covenant, there's no forgiveness. There is no will without the shedding of blood. Now, I have, I've intended and, you know, that when Catherine and I die, that we've left this church and our houses and so forth to Jason and John and their wives so that they can continue, uh, everything goes to them because everything goes to the Lord. So they can continue the work of the Lord in whatever way we can contribute, but they won't. It, that all won't happen until I die. <laughs> That's part of what covenant's about. <laughs> That's what testaments are about. That's what wills are about. So we have this double irony in the Christian life that Christ basically died to satisfy God's wrath so that God could enter into fellowship with us, but he basically died for people who weren't really worth it, except he chose to love us and make us worth it. There's no value that we have in and of ourselves, except he chose to create us in his image and to restore us to his image. And what's wonderful about that, actually, is because every fallen person struggles with all kinds of insecurities. And if you can actually relate to that properly, you'll never be insecure again. Because he chose you 
And you don't have to fake him out to think that you're dedicated or you're intelligent or you're good looking or you have a lot of money. Or you, He chose you. You didn't deserve to be chosen. And he's, he's a covenant keeping and a covenant making God. He's not fickle. His love will abide on you forever. And there's nothing you can do. Although all those the father gave Jesus, he lost not one except Judas, the son of perdition that was prophesied ahead of time. And he's not going to, faithful is he who began a good work in you, and he will bring it to pass. He's not going to lose you, and it's not because you're such a fine Christian. It's because of the exchanges made at the cross. So the first irony is that to God, it was totally worth it to die for people who were totally worthless, except for he chose to say, I, ha- I give you worth. Isn't that awesome? And then secondly, you know, the irony of what the Bible is, calls us to confession of, to conviction of sins, confession of sins, repentance, that is to beginning a process of trading our life for his life. And the irony is our life has no value anyway. He's asking us to basically trade a pile of dung for the riches of glory. You know, like your, our life is something like a, a McDonald's hamburger, which is pretty raunchy and disgusting to think of in itself. I hope you don't don't still eat at McDonald's. Maybe the Lord have brought you further than that. But uh, but it, but one that you've actually left in the car in the summertime for a couple weeks. And then you find maybe like a French fry like when you're about to vacuum out the car after like three months and it's got mud and leaves down there and so forth. And you find a little piece of cheeseburger and a little fry and you go, mm, I'll go ahead. That's what our lives are, are. And he gives us, you know, burn steakhouse. That's a restaurant in Tampa, Florida. It's internationally right now. But whatever. He, he gives you the glories of the marriage supper of the lamb. But you gotta, but you gotta trade. You gotta cash it all in. He's like, I'll take all the rest of that little piece of cheeseburger and all that little French fry. You actually have to kind of put, give it to me. Oh no, <laughs> that's. I mean, that's really what the gospel is. You have to trade it all in, and you have to do that every day, of every minute, of every hour. They know that song that John, I think, sometimes sings. I need you every hour. We sing. We don't sing that one, but uh, <laughs> well, it's a wonderful song. I need you every minute, <laughs> every hour, uh, every day. We'll get to that. All right, so let's talk about these eight exchanges. And I'm, I'm going to got about eight minutes to talk about them. So the first one is sin, and the second one is sins. I'm going to combine them together. I just want you to know you can read those scriptures for yourself, and and they're uh, both. Uh, they're all uh, from Isaiah 53. All those scriptures there are from Isaiah 53. But you need to understand that sins and sin are different. Sins are our individual acts of sin, which to some degree, because of our individuality, we vary in a little bit. You know, some people are more gluttonous, and some people are more lustful, and some people are more boastful, and some people are more fearful. And whatever your, you know, whatever your specific sins are might vary a little bit, but no temptation is overtaking you such as common to man. 
really, they're not that different. <laughs> uh, like you didn't, you know, I, like the sexual revolution of the '60s. Really, go back and study the, you know, Babylon and the pagans and copulating in the fields and what Ashtar's worship was and Baal. I mean, it, it, there's nothing new under the sun. Everybody's so afraid to tell their sins, but pretty much, I could just give you a list. And you could say, oh, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? So those are our sins. But deeper than that is our sin. And our sin goes beyond our pride and our rebellion, but it goes to Adam and Eve trying to cover their own nakedness and hide from the presence of God. There is none who seeks me, no, not one. The philosophies of men, what's taught at the universities, uh, what modern psychology and sociology and anthropology and, and bi, you know, biology is mostly about is men trying to put fig leaves on themselves to hide themselves from the presence of God. That, you know, and... Uh, you know, mankind in, in his sin is at a stage of development, which is wonderful in little kids. I think Samuel's going to be pretty much at this stage pretty soon where you can go play peekaboo with them. They don't know when they're covering their eyes that you can't see them. And that goes a long way to explain academia today. Like men think that God can't see me when I'm doing this thing <laughs> and when I'm thinking this. And, and I need as many spins and philosophies to try to get God not to be able to see me as possible. That is the essence of your sin nature. And the essence of trading it in is he wants you to trade it in that for a new heart that you can't produce, that he can only he can give you where the love of Christ will control you. And the only way you can get closer to it is to have regular spiritual disciplines where you start by saying, the love of Christ does not control me. <laughs> Save me from myself. Let me love what you love. Let me hate what you hate. Let me know your ways. Te make Conform me to your heart. Conquer me. That's the essence of daily grace. And the daily bread. That's the bread you need every day. So I hope, under, you know, I wish I could develop this more, but sin is something quite deeper than sins. And it's quite clear in both Isaiah 53 and in, the, in many various New Testament uh, adaptations of Isaiah 53, especially by Peter and Paul, that, that he saved you from both. Thank God. God that he didn't just forgive my sins because if he did I could keep multiplying them faster than than uh, he, I could tell you about them third fourth and fifth we're going to lump together but when when Adam and Eve sinned they not only were alienated from God so that they tried to cover their nakedness and they tried to hide from the presence of God, but they began to blame each other. The woman whom thou hast done me. You know, I always know that we're in a lot of trouble when I start with marital counseling, and both of them have about a 90% view that it's the other people's fault, the other one's fault. <laughs> and that's where you start a lot of times. Like, 
yeah, I would agree that like three or four percent is my fault, but it's all her fault. It's all his fault. It's that woman God gave. It's God's fault for God's sakes. Why did he even make me this way? <laughs> you know, you, when, whenever you start there, I know that we're in a lot of trouble, but here, boys, <laughs> reminds me of movies. It's, we're in a heap of trouble. Um, mankind is alienated from each other. If you don't believe that, look at the history of the world. I think there's been in the known history of mankind that all the days that there wasn't a war going on somewhere that we know about in history do not even add up to a full year's worth of days. Man's inhumanity to man is probably the most predominant theme of all literature, music, and art. Um... I want us to make sure we understand we're even alienated from ourselves. Our conscience bears witness. It excuses us or accuses us. We're not at peace in ourselves. Paul says, I don't understand my own actions. Please read the whole section in Romans 7. But I joyfully concur with the, you know, there's times where when we're worshiping or when I'm in my study praying and I cry and I'm so sorry, I'm a bad Christian, Lord, and please help me be a good Christian. I just want to love God and I want to love you with all my heart. And that usually lasts about like, you know, not doesn't usually make it through lunch or whatever. I mean, maybe through breakfast. I don't know. It, not, it, even then, I'm sure it's not even close to pure then. You know, uh, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I, I do the very thing I hate. That sounds like a description of many of a lot of people. Talk, I've had a pretty bad last two weeks or whatever. That's there's there's exactly why because you're still being the Lord and you still want to do it and you think you can do it and you're not you're not emptying yourself and making the trade. You're not saying God, I'm a total evil, wicked worm. Help me, save me. Trade my life for yours. That's how you got to start every day. Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I left out the first part of the verse. I have been crucified with Christ. A pretty important part of the verse. I've been crucified with Christ. If you're not dead, you got no hope to, to do anything except experience sin, and the wages of sin will be death, and your life will be poisoned. And it will go bad for you. And I, you know what? I love you so much. I actually pray. My mother used to do this to me. And I, at the time, I didn't understand it. I really didn't like But she prayed that I would be miserable in my sin. And I'm like, thanks a lot. Well, actually, thanks a lot. I'm, may you be miserable in your sin. So that you can each day say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in this body, in the flesh, I now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And I make that trade in my posture of life every minute of every hour of every day. I need thee every hour. And whenever I kind of think I got this, boy, I, you know, I've been 
been pretty on fire for the Lord the last few days and so forth. And, and I started, and suddenly I start thinking, okay, Lord, thanks for the help. But I got it now. You know, I'm coming downhill on the skateboard and I don't land on this. You know, it's a good thing I wear helmet protections. <laughs> I mean, you know, like you're going to crash. And the part of what it means to grow in Christ is to get off this yo-yo thing of crashing every thing and just stay humble all the time. Stay on the cross so that he doesn't have to. Um, alienation. I wish I could deal with that, but all of life, it, believe me, when you have Christ begin to come in your life, you start a journey to be to be re, to be restored from your alienation to God, alienation to, to human beings and other relationships, and even alienation to yourself. That's why we have testimonies of people who are like, well, when I started forgiving and how God set me free when I did this and that. And there's lots of people sitting in these pews who have testimonies of how God helped them not be so alienated from themselves. Um, you know. Uh, when they got baptized in the spirit or when they uh, finally forgave, you know, that kid in third grade <laughs> who stole my peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> but, or, and, uh, and whatever else is you're bitter and angry about still. Uh, poverty. Now, I'm not talking a prosperity gospel, you know, that if you give more money to our church, you'll be blessed. I hope that's true. But uh, but uh, but I am... I am uh, talking that poverty is a way of life and richness is a way of life that first celebrates the richness of Christ and the richness of family and the richness of relationships and lots of other kinds of richness, but vocational hard work and sacrifice and and all this is all part of it. And he became poor that you might become all the riches of heaven including the material ones. The, the word became flesh. It has to do with spiritual, uh, material. They're all part of his riches. There she is. Welcome. Uh, and finally, death. Now, I, I'm glad death is eighth because eight is the number of the resurrection. Jesus was raised on the eighth day of the week which is the first day of the week, which is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, and through his resurrection, we are new creations. And God has so worked the mystery of it that the Romans 8 talks about how the ancient longing of the creation cries out in bondage, longing to be set free, but every one of us is going to die so that we may live. Our bodies are going to be sown in, into the ground. That's why I'm very against cremation, and I'm very for it, but I don't condemn anyone who's done it or anything. But, uh, you know, the reason we have Christian burial and we have funerals and everything else is to sow a seed before God that will be risen forever. So those are the exchanges. I got maybe two minutes to go through this last part. Grow, how to grow in grace. How to make this exchange real and practical. First, stand naked and empty before God every day. Contrast Adam to Christ, biblical imagery. Christ, when Adam and Eve sinned, before they sinned, they were naked and didn't know it. 
They weren't ashamed. After they sinned, they were ashamed of their nakedness. And if you look, you, nakedness is a universal symbol of shame in all literature and all art throughout all history. Now we flaunt it because of our shameful culture. Uh, but Christ didn't, you know, because of of the because Christians have always had a degree of sh- of, you know, the good kind of shame. Like uh, we've always depicted Christ on the crucifix with a little loincloth thing, but that's not how it was. The reason the women, you know, according to Luke's version, stood back at a distance, oh, John's version, Mary, and a few women were close, but some were back at a distance, was because he was naked. Because he took your shame. He took your guilt. He took Adam's nakedness. And the only way you can really be clothed, I, you know, I I ran out of time, but between meetings, I'm going to tie my tie and put my suit coat on because I wanted to look nice today. But I pray that you're clothed with Christ because that's the only suit that'll ever do you any good. Except maybe in a job interview, secondarily or something. Exchange your life for Christ's life every morning, every day. I've preached on this verse so many times, Hebrews 4. Uh, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, one who, but yet one who was tempted in all things. So draw near to the throne of grace that you might find help in the time of need. And guess when the time of need is, when you really need righteousness the most, when you really need to be clothed with power from on high, when you really need the active flowing of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, the power of his resurrection. That is so critical right now. Every moment of every day. Do not worry about tomorrow. Why do you are anxious about what you'll wear? What you, you Don't borrow from tomorrow's troubles is what Jesus is saying. You can't even afford the interest rates. Each day is the only place you can ever fellowship reality. And God is right in this moment. And right now you need to draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. That's why we're about to worship and take the Lord's Supper. And that's what we need to do every moment of every day. Amen.